folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 13, lucky number 13 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is a podcast in which Brian and myself begin with the music of fish, and then we'll utilize that to spin off into a variety of non-jam bands that we think that the listener will enjoy and may not have heard, or in some cases, like this episode, probably have heard, because we are fish fans, we love fish very much, but sometimes fish fans get a bit myopic, all they listen to is fish, and we are here to remind you that there are many, many different types of music out there with which to expand your mind. Isn't that right, Brian? Expand your mind and go beyond the pond. Mm. So here in our 13th episode, we are focusing on a very classic fish jam. We're taking it back in time right now to December 1995, one of the greatest, perhaps, I think I would argue, the greatest month in fish history. We're going to talk about a very famous fish jam, but a fish jam that definitely deserves us breaking it down. December 14th, 1995, Halley's Comet. So like Dave was saying, we're going to take this jam, we're going to talk a little bit about the Halley's Comet, we're going to spin this off, talk about a few other bands that thematically we uh, find certain similarities with the Halley's, probably certain similarities that uh, um, aren't being anticipated right now at this point in the episode, but we'll get there, and then we're going to talk about a little bit of new music. And uh, share some uh, share some tunes with you that we think that you guys would really enjoy, particularly based around this Haley's Comet. Some of the themes that we are going to explore in this show include singular sonic experimentation within a defined sound and Trey Anastasio's mid-90s improvisational songwriting. And on that note, let's get to it. All right, so the 12-14-1995 Haley's Comet. So why this jam? Well, this jam came out of one of the best set twos of 1995. Uh, This Haley's finds itself in the midst of a tweezer timber tweezer sandwich um followed later in the set by haley's and the nicu into slave which is a back-to-back non-traditional jamming uh little little segment right there and especially in december 1995 when they were jamming a lot i mean summer 95 was a very jam heavy tour incredibly jam heavy tour but jams out of traditional jam songs, Tweezer, David Bowie, uh, Mike Song, to see Haley's and NICU jam in the extent that it did, I've got to imagine this had to blow some heads' minds uh, in, in the Binghamton uh, arena. What do you think, Dave? Well, this is actually, um, I didn't realize this until I started to do some research for the episode, but this is considered to be the first first ever Haley's jam. I mean, yes, some is. have... Uh, gone a few extra minutes but in terms of going going completely type two this is where it started and it's actually it's kind of the rare song that never jammed and then did nothing but jam from 1997 to 2003 and i think they've only done a jam on one occasion since so following the final uh final central part of town phrase it usually either serves as a launch pad into an extended jam or a launch point to one other song to keep the energy running high. And it's kind of dependent on the type of band that they are um, in that point in history. During the brief period when the jamming was the number one goal, Haley's jammed far out. For the rest of the career, and especially in 3.0, everyone is 
hoping that the Haley's gets the extra jam treatment. They listened for small clues during the jam. They're like, oh, we're going to do it. They're going to do it. They never do. Even during Baker's Dozen, they didn't even bother jamming out Haley's Comet. Right. So um, <laughs> some of the standout ones that we thought of were the, certainly August 17, 1997, the Great Went version. It was very good. Um, November 22nd, 1997. July 10th, 1998, uh, August 3rd, 1998. I think that came right after the Smashing Pumpkins Rhinoceros opener at Deer Creek, right? Yeah, the uh, light following uh, the Deer Creek Rhinoceros opener. Uh, you got this kind of dark, very uh, patient ballad to open the song, and then you've got <coughs> Haley's Comet coming right out of there. Just an unbelievable explosion of joy into... Um, I think there was a Love Supreme jam midway through that that's really, really pretty. Hmm. Um, following that, 11-11-1998 from um, Michigan. Uh, this is an absolutely phenomenal Haley's Comet. Very groove-heavy, very peaking. Uh, some would say that this, along with the Haley's Comet from Hampton Coliseum a year earlier, are the two best versions they've ever played. Uh, the following summer, 71979 10899127999 early 3.0. I love that show, and this Haley's uh, is a huge part of the reason for that. Um, so this particular jam uh, from from 1995, very, very song-based jam, and we kind of hinted at this in, in the themes. There's moments where this jam feels 3.0, uh, like a 3.0 jam at times, and I don't say that in a way like their speed is slower, or um, you know, I, don't, I mean it in the sense that the band sounds locked in towards a melodic end point. It sounds like they're trying to create a song on the fly. Um, there's riffs that emerge around 5 minutes and 40 seconds, as well as later around 10 minutes, that carry the song um, in much the same way a Baker's does in Jamwood. And this was really a, a big thematic center point to Trey's playing in December 95. Would you agree? Yeah. Is Haley's Comet has that in the sense that, like you say, they are trying to recreate a song. There's a melody. There's something that will get stuck in your head. I mean, I almost think of almost like something they did in uh, the Tweezer, the Madison Square Garden Tweezer from what was, I believe, the uh, 2015 into 2016 holiday run. It was a set two opener mm -hmm. that was... January, I think January 2nd, 2016, it would have been? You're correct. Okay. Yeah, at one point in that tweezer, it got very melodic. And if you didn't know better, you'd think it was an actual song. Right. It's got like a melody that you can sing. It's got notes with a purpose. It isn't just soloing. It's like you plan it out like beforehand. Right. And this jam very much feels like something he almost had written on paper backstage and said, okay, I can throw this into Haley's Comet. Right, right. And it also, you know, you can kind of tell that the latter riff that's played around 10 minutes is um, revised or reprised in some thematic sense in the NICU jam that emerges. And again, both of these songs are non-traditional jamming songs. I think NICU probably has um, just a handful of times it's gone beyond four and a half, five minutes long, this being one of them. Um, and it was clear like Trey was picking up on very song-based, melodic type of riffing it almost sounds like he's channeling new wave music to me. Um, and it also calls back to the tweezer in the parts where it gets really fast. And this was something that was a hallmark of December 95, where they'd um, zero in on a riff or a theme of, of some sort from one of the band members, kind of like the August 93, um, you know, hey jamming. But they'd zero in on a riff, and then they'd just toy with the um, pace of the, of the song at that point, and the tempo, and speed it up, and then slow it down, and it was almost like a display of skill. But here, um, 
it was more uh, for exploration rather than just you know a showcasing of, of, of how fast they could play. And listening to this Haley's Comet, one thinks to themselves, my God, Fish played Haley's Comet a lot faster in 1995. But, uh, you know, not for the reasons that the dead played things faster in 1983, 1984, exactly. <laughs> this is just they were uh, just younger and swifter. You know, Fishman had a little bit more of a fastball. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, you could just look at the Fall 94 and Fall 95 tours. They go from September until New Year's. It's just amazing how much time they had on the road to just gel and um, play essentially with one brain for, for so much of the time. Right. Um, so in regards to this show, so 12-14-95, this has a pretty significant show, I would say, in larger fish history. Um, this was the first... Uh, live fish release this was live fish 01 um this is also many of fans favorite shows i mean you could make the argument that it's the best second set of december 1995 ergo it's one of the best set twos of really fish's entire career yeah. and this show was uh this was sandwiched in between Providence and December 12, 1995. It's known for having a very, very long, excellent down disease. In Philadelphia, December 1595, set two that had a kind of strange bathtub gin with a rotation jam and had its ice. Remember, uh, a good friend of mine saw that Philadelphia show and he was like 16 years old at the time and he got back and he said, during bathtub gin, Fish screwed up, but that's okay because it means they're human. I like it when the band is human. So, <laughs> you know, that's up for debate as to whether they screwed up or there was the rotation jam and some kind of weirdness going on. And also, with this show, it is one of the three psycho tweezers from hell from fall 1995, being uh, November 30th, 95, from the good old Nutter Center in Dayton, Ohio, with some serious hose. December 2nd, 1995, my third show, New Haven, Connecticut, being one of the few times I felt like I got a full treadmill workout at a fish concert during that tweezer, because uh, it got very, very, very fast. Then the tweezer, uh, this show, December 14th, 1995, when they come out of Timberhoe into the second part of tweezer, it gets very, very fast. And although uh, not a fall show, there's also some of uh, the tweezer hose rage in December 28th, 95, night one of the holiday run from Worcester. Excellent, excellent version of the user. Absolutely. And you got the rarity stuck in there of Keyboard Cavalry, which I'm uh, not quite sure how many more appearances it had at this point in time, but not too many before it was reprised or revived at uh, Dick's on 9-6-2015 in the Encore Harpua slot. But beautiful little... Uh, um, piano-based number before they went into Haley's. And, um, you know, don't look past this set one. This is 1995, after all. These, uh, This is an era, especially December 95, when you really just need to press play at the start of the show and let it ride. Um, the song selection's fantastic. You've got a Susie Llama. you got Foam. Uh, you've got uh, 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 Makasupa Policeman <coughs> with uh, Gaddafi quotes. Um... An absolutely torrid, uh, near 15-minute split open and melt, and Tila, which is always, always welcome. Um, so really, really great, very solid set one, um, and really just all around. I remember, get, I remember buying this show when it came out on Live Fish. Um, I sworn I was going to buy everything in order. Um, I needed it uh, the way that Fish was releasing it, and uh, this was probably. My 10th show in my collection. I became a fish fan right before the Live Fish series came out. And this was just one of those shows that when it came to my collection, it just uh, added so much to what I already had and gave me a peak for the first time into December 95 and gave me some really great jamming and some just all-around phenomenal playing from the band. So really, really great show. If you haven't listened to this in some time, I'd highly recommend putting it on. It's a... It's uh, worth a full spin. All the live fish stuff is on Spotify, so if you have that, very easy to find. And on that note, let's give the folks some Binghamton Haley's. 
All right. I hope that you guys enjoyed that segment of the 1214-1995 Haley's. So at the top of the show, we talked about um, one of the themes that we wanted to go over. The idea of this singular sonic experimentation within a defined sound. What does that mean? One of the biggest things that we discussed when we were uh, planning this episode was the idea that Haley's um, was this jam in a vacuum for fish during this period where they were incredibly experimental and they were almost focusing overtly on experimentation, um, but that it that their 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 entire history is bookended by this approach that kind of balances experimentation with a very tight purposeful and intentional rock show and so they started this one way they went another way in a very experimental direction and then when they came back in 2009 they really focused on their roots and have kind of expanded since then but have never really returned back to the full-on uh jam heavy uh period that you had from 1997 to 2003 albeit the baker's dozen was probably the closest that we've seen in uh, in in over 10 years so we wanted to focus on three bands, three big bands that went through their own periods like this. And stylistically, they share nothing to fish, but they went through a period where they grew as a band and then they had to change to continue creatively as a band, reached kind of a breaking point with that, and then went back to kind of ground zero um, and haven't totally gone back to this completely edgy period in their life. So the first band we're going to discuss is one that I'm sure is wrought with controversy amongst many Fish fans, but um, I would ask for your patience and your open-mindedness throughout this because I assure you, (laughs) I assure you, uh, this band and this song and this album that we are going to focus on here is more than worth all of your time. The band I'm talking about is U2. Um... So U2, we wanted to talk about a very special record of theirs, a very significant record of theirs, but one that has been overshadowed by the enormity and the entirety of their rest of their career. And that's Zoo Ropa in 1993. And the song we want to focus on is called Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car. So a little bit of context. So following the Joshua Tree, U2 sought to completely redefine and reinvent their sound. They figured that this was the only way forward for them. They had peaked this lush Americana sound with the Joshua Tree and were the biggest band in the world at that point. In 1998, they played Rattle and Hum. They created Rattle and Hum, which is half live album, half new songs, which offered them further expansion within this Heartland American sound while allowing them to indulgently dabble in the blues. And following that tour, the band knew that to continue, they needed to hide away and re- re-emerge essentially as a new band. And either they were going to make or break it as a new band, or they were going to completely fail, fall on their face, and move on as solo artists or whatever they might do. Well, they almost broke up, but they ultimately found solace in Berlin, where they wrote and recorded much of their second masterpiece after Joshua Tree, known as Octoon Baby, which came out in 1991. This record was a complete reinvention for the band and a complete renewal and led to a massive and expansive world tour. And expensive. And expensive. Very, very expensive. Uh, The Zoo TV tour, which lasted nearly two years from February 1992 to December 1993. During a break in this tour, U2 went back into the studio to record some of the songs inspired by the tour's first year and from some of the sounds that they had been hearing while they were traveling around the world. This being the mid-90s, dance music was on the rise, beat-driven music, hip-hop, R&B, all these things were suddenly taking over mainstream pop culture, and U2 was hearing this as they were touring around as a uh, massive rock and roll band. (coughs) They intended Zooropa to be an EP release for the May 1993 European leg of the tour, the sessions quickly expanded into a rushed full album release, which is known as Zuropa. I would argue Zuropa is the most underrated U2 album, and it's unquestionably the furthest affray uh, the band has ever gone. Now, some people could say that this was pop, but in hindsight, pop not only contains more standard songs than Zuropa, 
but is the initial turn home that would be exploited in full by 2000's All That You Can't Leave Behind. And that's pop is in the album pop, not genre. Yes, yes. Pop right. is the uh, U2 album from 1997. It was a very tongue-in-cheek record. Mm. And in reality, it's not a very good record. It's probably their worst album. It's horrendously produced. It's so much so that if you go on to Spotify or Apple Music, most of the songs on the album you can't even hear in the record. I think you only get like six or seven of the songs. Um, Last Time on Earth is a great song, but I will agree with you that pop, I would say up until the release of their most recent album, pop was my least favorite U2 album. I would agree with that. I would say Last Night on Earth and MoFo are probably the two best songs on the album. Really yeah. the only two I'd go back to. Um, but going back to Zeropa, so what makes this record so special and so unique Bono was in full, uh, his, his Macfisto alter ego, which he played this part of this washed-up rock star in a real effortless manner. I mean, the, the, the way that he plays this guy, it's almost Broadway-esque, especially throughout Lemon. Um, what are your thoughts on Zeropa? Well, certainly... Like you said, it's the most danceable album by U2. Yeah. Certainly, you got it because Edge and the bass player Adam Clayton, they had dives into European dance culture, which especially played on the title track, the song Babyface, uh, and Daddy's Gonna Pay Her For Your Crash Car, which would go into play. Also, the second to last song, Dirty Day, it's yeah. sort of almost nine-inch nails, like early wax tracks, industrial-like, and it's a full-on tribute to Charles Bukowski. Yeah. Which is is kind of funny because all of the lyrics in that song are made up of Charles Bukowski lyrics. And what I like about Zuropa is that to me it's the last time it felt like U2 was writing just songs where it kind of didn't matter if they were going to play the songs live or not. They were writing them for themselves, and it kind of felt like the last U2 album that while um, it was informed by trends, they weren't necessarily chasing them. Like it wasn't. Like they felt like they had to get back to their old sound or they had to make a dance record. It was kind of felt relatively organic. Yes, yes. And also the last song, The Wanderer, which features Johnny Cash and lead vocals. It's kind of odd to say this now, but, you know, in the early 90s, I mean, Johnny Cash hadn't had his Rick Rubin reinvention yet. And it was a little obscure. Like I know I think... In 1991, he had, like, an anti-Persian Gulf song with a really bad video that accompanied it. But, you know, he wasn't – he was about as obscure as Johnny Cash had been for some time. This was before Rick Rubin made him hip again. Well, you know, in regards to the song that we're going to play here, um, Daddy's Gonna Pay For Your Crash Car, I don't think it's the best song on the record. Um, it does feel to me like the center of the album. It feels like the furthest you 2 got from their Joshua Tree American Bliss and kind of that furthest point away then from the re- reclamation story of all that you can't leave behind. It's very industrial. It's very dancey. Um, and following this record, kind of in regards to the theme of this overall show, the band really struggled with a follow-up direction. Uh, they crafted this rushed, undermastered pop, which uh, and then they embarked on the Pop Mart tour, which is one of the biggest and most expensive uh, rock failures in modern history. I have a soft spot for it. 6-28-1997 at Soldier Field was my first concert ever. Uh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was my first show. Um, I don't know if it was a very good show in hindsight. I was uh, 12 years old, but I loved it at the time. Um, Following the conclusion of that tour, uh, the band once again, now 10 years later, retreated from the spotlight and save for a best of release and a hit with the very traditional sounding sweetest thing. They underwent yet another redemptive or yet another kind of makeover, this time very redemptive and very minimalist, which resulted in 2000's All That You Can't Leave Behind, Bono saying saying that they were uh, uh, interviewing for the spot of the best band in the world again, Mm. and um, they've really left experimentation behind uh, after this. Uh, 
2004's How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb could almost be looked at as like side B of all that you can't leave behind. Um, there's definitely some differences between the approaches that read those two records, but it's kind of two sides of this band at a very interesting period in their lives where they're almost trying to recreate their past glories in two different ways. With varying degrees of success. With varying degrees of success. Some great songs, I would say, on both those records and some really bad songs. And um, A Man Loves a Woman is probably... Uh, the worst U2 song ever. Written. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, really the only time that they've attempted to kind of reclaim this experimentation was in on No Line on the Horizon from 2009, which... I like parts of it. I love the idea behind it, but it does feel somewhat tepid and it feels a little rehashed. And in reading about the record, it sounds like it was a very difficult record to make. I think they went through like three or four producers, almost similar to the um, Songs of Innocence project where they spent the majority of the time figuring out who's going to produce the record while splicing together a few little bits and pieces of songs. I don't know, it's, it's not my favorite record of theirs, but I'm glad that they tried it at that time. Really, their last 20 years since Zuropa came out, so 24, 25 years, have really been defined by a band trapped in their own nostalgia. They occasionally give these glimpses of inherent brilliance. I think we would both agree. I didn't see a show on this Joshua Tree tour, but by all accounts, it felt like U2 again. Um, but they're also grasping at this long-ago glory days. It's They're, they're kind of um, prisoners of nostalgia. They have right. to recreate who they once were while failing to be who they once were. It's, it's a weird dilemma because you look at... Like, someone on their level, like Bruce Springsteen, you know, he's playing songs from 40 years ago, but Bruce Springsteen doesn't totally feel out of touch with 2017 like U2 does. You know, for all the broadsides that are leveled at Bono, some of which weren't entirely unjustified, when you've written The Unforgettable Fire, The Joshua Tree, and Octung Baby and raised as many millions of dollars as you had for South African AIDS charities, you've basically earned the right to do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> so, hey, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, he's, uh, he gets a free pass for me. Whenever you two puts out a new record, I'll listen to it at least once. It might not have that much on there. Then I'll go back and put the Joshua Tree Nocturne Baby on there. But both of those are kind of two of like the greatest pieces of pop music of the past 50 years. So, I agree. you know. I agree. Let's go ahead. We're going to listen to uh, Daddy's Going to Pay for Your Crash Car. And we hope that we've at least uh, convinced you to listen to some U2 uh, here in the near future. A little love is
Okay, hope you uh, enjoyed hearing that song off of U2's Zeropa and well as Brian's and my justification as to why you should at least take some of U2 very seriously. So now we're going to shift over to another big band. We're currently no longer in existence. One of my favorite bands of all time, one of which I can say I own every one of their albums in some sort of of a physical manifestation of some kind, and that is R.E.M. And the album I'm going to talk about here is New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which came out in 1996, and the song is called Undertow, and is the fourth song on the record. Now, New Adventures in Hi-Fi... This came after R.E.M.'s 1994 album Monster, which was their big four-chord garage rock album with lots and lots of tremolo, pedal from Peter Buck, and before then was Automatic for the People. Also a very big hit, sort of a somber album with lots of acoustics and lots of strings. And of course, the one before that was 1991's Out of Time, which Losing My Religion sort of turned them into full-fledged celebrities that was actually their second album for warner brothers the first one uh being green in 1988 but yeah out of time kind of got the bell rolling on them being celebrities and um automatic for the people the monster solidified it so when new adventures in hi-fi 1996 kind of marked the beginning of a pronounced period of experimentation with their sound Albeit, at uh, this time, they still had their drummer, Bill Berry, in 1996. He would soon depart. I will get to that. But what makes this a unique album in R.E.M.'s discography is because, uh, you know, in addition to having a large amount of really dusty, road-weary ambience, the majority of the album actually was recorded on the road. So in 1995, R.E.M. embarked on the Monster Tour which really was their first large-scale tour since um, the tour they did for Green, which spanned 88 89. After that, they were really burnt out. They put out Out of Time, didn't tour, didn't tour behind Automatic for the People. When Monster came out, they toured in a major way. It uh, spanned all of 1995, and... The majority of the songs for New Adventures in Hi-Fi were actually recorded on stage during sound checks and recorded during the concerts themselves. This is mostly on the second leg of the tour, which took place in the fall and winter of 1995. In the case of the song Zither, they actually recorded it backstage in a dressing room somewhere in Philadelphia. So the songs in this record, some of which include Undertow, Departure, Binky the Doormat, and Revolution, which didn't actually make the record. Uh, I was part of the sessions. I think that appeared on um, the Batman and Robin soundtrack. All these songs were in heavy rotation on the later legs of the Monster Tour. And R.E.M. is not a jam band. However, what was interesting is that most of these new adventures and hi-fi songs were played long before the album came out, which you know generally doesn't happen amongst non, uh, non-jam band types. And they've said in interviews that the album was heavily influenced by another famous album that was largely recorded, or I should say entirely recorded on stage, Neil Young's Time Fades Away, which um, one of the best rock and roll albums ever put out by anybody. And this tour, uh, at first, the first leg was kind of the tour from hell. They talk about the Grateful Dead 95 being the tour from hell. But while... uh, Nobody died on the R.E.M. tour in 1995. On the first leg, Bill Berry, the drummer, he collapsed on stage from brain aneurysm. Michael Stipe had to have surgery for a hernia. And the bass player, Mike Mills, he had a abdominal surgery at one point. So they had to do reschedule a few dates, do a whole bunch of starting and stopping. And um, I actually caught the tour on October 1st, 1995 in Hartford, Connecticut. The opening band of that night was a relatively unknown band at that point called Radiohead. That was uh, something to hear Ben's era Radiohead opening up for R.E.M. And I heard many of the songs from Hi-Fi for the first time, and I wouldn't hear them again for ages because, you know, in 1995, there was no YouTube, no tape, uh, no streaming. People didn't generally trade R.E.M. tapes, although... 
I did somehow trade uh, a summer 1995 fish show for ended up being a very, very good copy of that show, which I uh, still have on XL2s to date. So in this case, while the songs still sound largely like REM songs, they're far rawer because of the onstage recording. And after New Adventures in Hi-Fi, Bill Berry left the band in early 1997 because he was burnt out. He had a near-death experience on stage, and R.E.M. didn't so much properly replace him going forward as using a variety of drummers and drum machines and loops. They say necessity is the mother of invention. So their next few albums are even more experimental in the sense that uh, the album Up in 1999, Reveal in 2001, and Around the Sun in 2004. Each of them was slightly more dire than the last. They kind of realized that they needed a full-time drummer behind them, and that's when they put together uh, Accelerate and their swan song Collapse Into Now, which were kind of both of were returned to like the mid-'80s rock sound with heavier drumming, Mike Mills chipping in much more on bass guitar and backing vocals, but certainly Hi-Fi was kind of, um, you know, where they went into the wilderness a bit. Uh, it's actually, Michael Stipe has gone on a record saying that he thinks it's their favorite album of their career. That's cool. I know, I think I've heard Mike Mills says that it's in the top three behind Automatic for the People and Murmur. And I think that would also be my top three, being Automatic number one, then their debut album from 1983, Murmur, and then New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And then for Completism, then I've got Lace Rich Pageant and probably Document after that for my favorite R.E.M. albums. But yeah, I mean, certainly when it came out in 1996, I don't think it was met with rapturous praise at first because it's pretty long. I think it's got 14 songs. It's a little dark. It definitely there's pictures of like the desert inside of it and cars and the whole thing is made to feel kind of distant like the song low desert towards the end you know really feels like something where you would get into like the Kerala the California desert and just drive but I think it's aged extremely well like it still sounds current and so now we're gonna listen to the song undertow which is one of many songs in the album that mention water and I'm gonna play it for you right now. here between segments um, we talk about a couple new records that we have been listening to we are in a boom period of 2017 we, we've kind of been anticipating this all year but um, we're in like a eight week great release after release after release it's been a lot of fun these last few weeks hasn't it Dave yes yeah, it's been a ton of fun. We've had some really great releases all in a row. It's almost been like trying to figure out what to listen to because there's so much great music. We we had um, uh, 
War on Drugs, of course, which we covered in a bonus episode that you guys all heard. Um, Queens of the Stone Age. We've got The National coming up. We've got uh, LCD Sound System. But I want to talk about another record that came out over the last couple of weeks that I cannot stop listening to, and that's Grizzly Bear's Painted Ruins. This is their first record in five years, and, and I really cannot believe that it's been five years and they've released a record that's this good. I was not the biggest fan of Shields. I know that there are a lot of Shields lovers out there. I was not a huge fan of that record. Um, and I kind of just assumed they were going to go off and do their own individual things. Ed Roast seemed really content doing little side projects here and there and being a mini Instagram celebrity. And Danny <laughs> Rawson is a uh, uh, fantastic singer-songwriter of his own like. I just didn't know if we'd ever hear from them again. Um What's really shocking, though, I mean, instantly, this is the most listenable and exciting Grizzly Bear record yet. And I don't think it's their best, but I think it's that they're, it's their most accessible record that they've ever made. Um, Chris Taylor's bass really feels like the focus here. It's the driving centerpiece of each song, um, and it really pushes the song forward. And the emphasis on electric instruments and the emphasis on... Um, beat-driven melodies is something that you just never really heard in Grizzly Bear in albums past. Um, beyond that, Daniel Rawson's guitar, his songwriting, it really rises above Ed Rose for the first full time in their career. Um, and this is really the least Drost record of Grizzly Bear's entire career. Um, it may not be as surprisingly beautiful as Yellow House was when that came out in 2006, um, or as lush and experimentally perfect and diverse as Vectimus was. But this really is the clearest depiction of Grizzly Bear's sound in recording. And like I said, this is their most accessible entry point for them. If you've always been casually curious, if you liked <coughs> Two Weeks, if you liked you know any of the other singles that they've released, but always found their sound too dense or too complicated, this would be a really good entry point. Um, songs like Morning Sound which is one of my favorite songs of 2017. Four Cypresses, Aquarian, Cutout, Glass Hillside. These are all standout songs, and it really, um, they feel like a, a rebirth and a reaffirmation all at once of who Grizzly Bear is. And this album really follows the track of mostly great returns for 2000s indie rock bands in 2017. It's been a fairly good track overall. Fleet Foxes, New Pornographers, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, Spoon, Real Estate, Broken Social Scene, even Queens of the Stone Age. You could even make an argument for the War on Drugs since their first record came out in 2008. But it's been a good year for a lot of these mid-00s bands that... Um, have released just fantastic records in 2017. So um, definitely would recommend checking out Grizzly Bear's Painted Ruins. What do you got, Dave? Well, for Queens of the Stone Age fans, I'll say that uh, their latest record, Villains, I think that's their strongest since Lullabies to Paralyze, at least. I'm a big fan of that record. Huge fan. I love it. But uh, a lot of people know Queens of the Stone Age, so that's not what I'm really going to focus on here. I am going to talk about a guy named Luke Elliott, and his album is called Dressed for the Occasion. Um, this is a guy I actually discovered recently by listening to the uh, Sound Opinions podcast, which I've talked about on this pod before. So Luke Elliott, he's a stylish, stylish man. Think he's a dark crooner, very much in the vein of Leonard Cohen and Nick Cave. Like every photo of him you see is in black and white where he's opening wearing an open collar and blazer and he kind of makes cigarette smoke and look cool, but he really sells it. You know, like you never see Leonard Cohen or Nick Cave wearing cargo shorts. Cause that's just not their thing. These guys don't know from comfort. And even the cover art of this album, which kind of is black and white, has him kind of staring up against a brick wall might even be a direct allusion to the cover art from Nick Cave's 1997 album, the Boatman's Call, which is known as his uh, piano-heavy kind of depressive record where he pines over losing P.J. Harvey. So Luke Elliott, he actually recorded this album in Norway, and he's 
kind of the big thing in Scandinavia, which is interesting, but not here so much yet. He's uh, The songs are very lush and orchestrated. He has a very deep, sonorous baritone. He's big on story songs. He has a song about train robbery. He's got a song about superstition. He mentions uh, the New York avant-garde poet Frank O'Hara. And uh, his main instrument is the piano. I know there's some songs where it's largely him and piano, more of a like a Leonard Cohen balladry form. There's also some of these songs feature uh, like spaghetti western guitars. The atmosphere is dark throughout. Everything is in shades of black and white. I know that his live band it uh, features members of the most recent version of Michael Giras Swans, which is awesome. So sometimes some of the lyrics tip into a little bit of cliche, but while uh, he's had some EPs, this is his full-on debut record, and it really, to me, marks the arrival of a very talented guy. There's always room for another dark, crooning singer-songwriter who looks the part and sells the part, and if you're into any of the artists that I mentioned, I would also say uh, some earlier Tinder Sticks. Certainly uh, some national, if you're into the, you know, the middle-aged baritone dark thing. So I think that's kind of what I'm getting from this record as well. But I've been hooked. I was uh, listening to it a whole lot last week before the War on Drugs record came out, especially the song The Great Rondon Train Robbery, which tells a tale of... um, the real-life Newton gang robbing a train in the 1920s is extremely cool. So, yeah, Luke Elliott, just for the occasion. I think you'll be hearing about this guy a lot sooner than later. So get him to him now. Okay, folks, it's now for our third and final band, which we are going to discuss. I'm going to talk about a very small, very unknown band just coming up in this world. <laughs> called Pearl Jam. Never heard of Pearl Jam. Album we are going to discuss from Pearl Jam is their 1996 opus called No Code. So, if 1994's Vitalogy was largely Eddie Vedder's Fame Sucks, I Wish I Was Dead album, then the follow-up is this Fuck It, Let's Throw Everything Against the Goddamn Wall and See What Sticks album. Um, it's appreciated far more now than when it was first released. I know it lacked the usual slam-bang lead single. Uh, the lead single for No Code was the song Who You Are, which is kind of a catchy rock take on world music, largely influenced by Eddie Vedder's new fascination with the uh, Pakistani musician uh, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. It's still kind of a, huh? For you know, fans hungry for like another Corduroy or Better Man or similar. And what's interesting about No Code is that it was initially they started recording without Jeff Amen, the bass player, who wasn't even made aware that they had started recording. And uh, a lot of people they credit um, their then drummer Jack Irons for kind of holding everything together because at this point. Vetta was a bit of like a gloomy Gus towards the other guys. I think uh, they'd be on their tour bus and he would travel in his own car or like motorcycle. Um, they were still touring non-Ticketmaster venues at this point in 1996, which led to them kicking off the tour at the Casper Events Center in Wyoming. This record as well, um, and I think kind of speaking to the larger theme of the episode... Um, like David said, this was their kind of let's just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. It's it's all over the map stylistically. Um, Hail Hail and Habit are your lo-fi garage rockers with zero studio sheen. Smile sounds like Crazy Horse. Uh, there's tribal drumming in In My Tree. Very Black Crozy Southern Rock on Res Mosquito. There's uh, Slow Down Lullabies in Around the Bend and Off He Goes. Two songs that wouldn't totally uh, sound in their place until uh, the Benaroya Hall re- re- release in 2003 and some of the acoustic shows that they were doing. Uh, Raging Punk in uh, Lunkin and Mankind and Stone Gossard's only lead uh, vocal on a Pearl Jam record, which sounded uh, a lot like Foo Fighters. That was, uh, that was Mankind. 
Um, the band had spent the previous year recording as the backing band for Neil Young on his somewhat forgotten record called Mirrorball, which was a mini European tour for him. Certainly in 1995, Pearl Jam and Neil Young was a bit of a mutual admiration society. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Eddie Vedder joined Neil Young on stage in 1993 at the Video Music Awards, rocking in the free world. They kind of struck up a friendship. Neil Young was quoted in every magazine as saying, I like Pearl Jam. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting on June 24, 1995, uh, they played Pearl Jam, played a concert. In San Francisco at Golden Gate Park, I think they had, got maybe like 45,000, 50,000 people. It's a huge, huge concert, the height of their popularity. So while Fish was blowing up David Bowie in Philadelphia, Eddie Vedder was blowing chunks off stage after seven songs. He was really sick. Now people think that he had food poisoning at that show. Neil Young took over. So at this concert, uh, Neil Young, him and Pearl Jam ended up playing most of the Mirrorball album, which would come out a week later. And then they played like Powderfinger and Down by the River. And the audience hated it. They were angry and a little confused. And, you know, being 1995, this made all like the MTV newsreels with Kurt Loder and Tap of the Soren. And I remember being 15 years old and asking my mom, like, Mom, that sounds awesome. Awesome. Neil Young came out and played at Pearl Jam. She told me, David, most of these kids don't know who Neil Young is. <laughs> and I thought about it. I'm like, well, all right, maybe their parents didn't have like all the Neil Young vinyl records, so she might have she might have had a point there. But still, I, I thought you it was mean to cool. tell me that their dads weren't putting on Harvest on a uh, summer's night as they made margaritas and flank steak? Am I yeah. the only kid who experienced that? Yeah, their dads weren't woke. Uh, to be honest, I used to hate No Code. Now I would put it up in Pearl Jam's top three. It's all over the place, but it's very listenable. It's actually kind of pleasantly devoid of the anthems upon which they made their name. And uh, the song we're going to play, Smile, in addition to sounding a lot like Neil Young, I know uh, Jeff Amen, he is credited with writing that song, that became kind of like a concert favorite and a bit of like a rarity because i mean pearl jam you know they don't improvise like a jam band does but they play tons of shows they change their set list every night and when they break out smile sometimes in the encore the crowd loves it they go nuts so you know it's you know akin to like a destiny unbound breakout or something like that so i'm just saying that you know like bust outs aren't only something that Fish does. Yeah, and the next record, Yield, uh, was widely seen as the as their comeback record. This is kind of their... This record, I mean, honestly, gets overlooked, I would say, by a lot of people. Um, they would enter another quasi-experimental phase with Binaural and Riot Act, but by the time they recorded Pearl Jam in 2006, it was uh, a similar move to U2 recording All That You Can't Leave Behind. It was their complete return to form record. Um, I didn't listen to No Code a lot when I was really getting into Pearl Jam as a kid, but I'm right there with you. It's in my top three. Um, Versus was the first Pearl Jam record to hook me, and I think I, that will stay in my top three, as well as Yield. That was the first Pearl Jam record I owned. Um, I was in eighth grade when that came out and mm. it was the first time that like a Pearl Jam a new release by Pearl Jam felt like a release you know that that was mine everything else was kind of catching up but um, I think it's I would say it's their most interesting their most diverse and, and in a lot of cases their most listenable um, it feels like it's the last time they were the original concept of Pearl Jam while also trying to break completely free from it uh, you know yield and Pearl Jam self-titled feel like these two um, uh, return to form records. This feels like the last time they were that 90s nucleus of Pearl Jam trying to break away from that. You know, I think what the big takeaway is from the era when they released Binaural and Riot Act is really that that's when their live show became what has carried them over to 2017 and made them still an essential band. Um, you know, around the time of No Code, like you were discussing, it was pretty hard to see Pearl Jam live. And um, 
Yield, I think, was their first big tour uh, since like 1993, 1994. And then 2000, they did a full-on world tour and released um, all those shows on bootlegs. And ever since then have been at least every other year pretty substantial tours that um, all get released, like you were saying, completely different set lists. And that's really the legacy of who Pearl Jam is nowadays. Let's listen to Smile. This is uh, one of our favorite tracks off of one of our favorite Pearl Jam records that if you aren't familiar with, I would highly recommend getting familiar with it right now. you guys for um, indulging us in this episode. I think this was probably our most indulgent episode we've done thus far. Three bands are very near and dear to the three of our, to the two of our hearts um, that we think deserve a closer look, if you will. So, mm. recapping uh, the songs that we played here, segment one, uh, we threw out U2's Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car off of Zuropa, followed by R.E.M., Undertow off of New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And we finished it off with a bit of an exploration of Pearl Jam's No Code via the song Smile, uh, which came out in 1996. Yes. So, reminder, if you want to get in touch with us, we have uh, pretty active on social media. You can find us at Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond. Got a medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And on Spotify, we've got the playlist, <coughs> the Beyond the Pond podcast songs playlist, which gets updated with the songs from every episode to the extent that they are available right when the episode airs. We're 13 episodes in now. I think there's at least 90 songs in this playlist, so you can just press shuffle. And have yourself a hell of a time. Very, very diverse songs to go through. And um, highly recommend anybody play that. We'll, we'll push that on Twitter here uh, right after this episode comes out. Um, just in regards to our publishing structure. So our um, standard episodes, these uh, ones where we focus on jams, are every other Tuesday. So this is coming out. The day after Labor Day, so right after the Dick shows finish, so we will cover Dick's uh, two Tuesdays from today. We'll do a jam very similar to what we did to the Baker's Dozen, do a big full breakdown. But in the meantime, we're most likely going to be at least one more, if not two more, of our new series, First Impressions. Uh, if you missed that, we released one on the War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding. This is a fun little shorter podcast where we just deep dive a new album that we're excited about, talk about it, um, talk about what it means, and uh, spew a bunch of hyperbole after we've heard the record for the first time. Um, It's a lot of fun to do and uh, another cool way for us to engage and give you guys some new good music. 
Um, and then just looking forward, uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming up this fall. We're very excited for you guys to hear some of the episodes, some of the jams that we have on the horizon, as well as we're going to start bringing guests on. Um, and I'll just say if anyone is interested in uh, coming on to an episode of Beyond the Pond, talking about a jam that means a lot to them, picking out a few songs that uh, thematically um fit the jam either from a musical stylistic standpoint or from a larger musical think piece standpoint historical aspect whatever you think um please feel free to direct message us on twitter and uh we'd love to get that conversation started with you but definitely look forward to that we will pay attention to you if you direct message us on twitter yes (laughs) we will be excited and only all too happy to do so and on that note I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And then join us in two Tuesdays, and we together will go beyond the pond.